When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name's Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions, but of course, the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Jeff Vogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Jeff, how you doing today? I'm doing awesome. Thank you. Certainly glad to hear that. Hope our listeners are doing well today. Jeff, it is December already. Where's the time gone? We've just got about three weeks until Christmas, of course, four weeks before 2024. So on this program, we'll talk about some of the things that we may want to consider before the year ends. But in this part, we always talk about current events. And I want to talk a little bit about the Black Friday shopping and some of the shopping that has been going on here recently. It seems that shopping is really, really up in terms of sales. And I don't understand that because it seems that we're in a credit bubble here. People, as long as they have money in the checking account or more importantly, they have money on a credit card, it doesn't seem like anything is really going to slow them down. Well, I, you know, I don't know. Retail sales are down overall if you look at year to year and that kind of thing. But, you know, we do have a couple of things that have happened this year, at least on Black Friday. I think there's a couple of things. And I'm not trying to poo-poo the idea that we had a lot of sales. Yeah, the rich people are still getting richer. They're still making money in the stock market. They still have a lot of excess liquid capital that what are you going to do with it when the market's a little sketchy? You might as well buy stuff. And there's a lot of that going on. The other thing is, I think with the inflation pressure that we're having, I think people have kind of held off buying until Black Friday. If you look at year-to-date sales for a lot of companies, they're down. I mean, you know, we've got a lot of retailers that are beating earnings estimates, but those estimates were lower than what they were a year ago or a quarter ago. And there's kind of a mixed message out there that, oh my gosh, retail sales are great. No, we had this great Black Friday and a great Cyber Monday. I think the pressure on Black Friday and Cyber Monday is more people are basing their entire Christmas season on selling during Black Friday and really marketing the heck out of sales and advertising and things like that. I mean, everything from Instagram and Facebook to all the social media sites have tons of Black Friday deals here. You get emails all day long about Black Friday deals and Cyber Monday deals. I mean, shoot, I'm still getting them. Cyber Monday held out another week or two weeks or whatever till Christmas. But I think people are trying to get the best deals they can, especially those people that are getting hurt by uh, the inflationary pressures that we've seen, higher interest rates. They can't afford to buy things, uh, big things on time. So maybe they're buying a lot of little Christmas type stuff. As long as they still have a credit limit, they are still going to load up those credit cards. And that's one thing we did see also is, you know, that we didn't hear about in the same context as the increased sales is just how much of that was put on credit cards that are continuing to bury people in debt. I mean, the debt to equity ratio of the typical person. And I mean that by how much you have in savings compared to how much you have in emergency cash and how much you have in debt. Most people are further into debt than they are increasing their savings and stuff. They've been spending that down, all the excess uh, savings that was uh, given out during the stimulus period of the last few years during COVID. Most of that from the standard household has been spent as of about a month ago. So there's not a lot of excess savings, but there is a lot of people that are hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars richer over the last 10 years that are still the upper middle class. They're still able to buy stuff and they're they're able to pay more for things. So I don't think 
the sales figures that I've seen are inflation adjusted. They're just actual revenue. So if we've had four or 5% inflation from a year ago, two or 3% population increase from a year ago, we're going to have increased sales naturally, even if we stay at moderately the same levels. Even if we go down just the uh, extra revenue number, population growth number, et cetera, we're going to see some increases there kind of inherently, not to mention that, uh, like, like, like I said, who's buying this stuff? Is it the lower middle class, those people that are still groveling for their next paycheck, living paycheck to paycheck that have already tapped out their credit cards? Or is it those people that are still pretty flush and still not believing that there could be a, a market crash in sight and that uh, we're going to actually have this soft landing that everybody talks about, which we may or may not. The bottom line is I'd rather err on the side of caution than on the side of Everybody, the news, everybody, you know, thinks that we're not going to have a recession because the Fed's done raising interest rates and inflation is no longer going to be a problem, blah, 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 blah. Fact is, inflation is still a problem. Fact is, people are still overspending. The fact is, it could still always come back to bite us in the butt. So we need to be careful about that. However, you know, I'm optimistic. I'm glad that people feel that they, uh, you know, there's a certain consumer sentiment that things are okay enough to go out and spend a lot of money. I hope it's not all on credit cards because those can default and cause a big bad ripple effect through the economy. When there's major defaults, when, you know, people start getting scared and there is a panic, if there ever is a panic that may happen, if there starts to be a sell-off because actual numbers kind of catch up to us, being that, uh, you know, inflation has uh, still been a problem. They haven't gotten it down to that 2% level as fast as they would have hoped. You know, some of the people are out there saying that inflation is going to still remain here, probably not get down to that 2% level to at least 2026, long after the next election, maybe another year after that before it could even get in check. And that is only if policies change and depending on uh, who's in the White House and stuff. So, you know, if that's going to be the case, it's still going to be putting pressure on the economy, whether the interest rates are raised or not, because the damage largely has already been done. And it's not damage has been done. It's really just a delayed corrective major that had to be done because the damage was really caused by all this stimulus money that was just printed. And so I guess in summary, you know, the yeah, sales were up, you know, we've got to consider that most of them were not in the brick and mortar stores. They weren't going out shopping. They were just hitting buy, 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 with credit cards online. That is maybe a little bit worrisome for me. But, you know, again, we have a growing population. We have a growing inflation. The numbers are going to be higher anyway, just because of those two factors. As far as revenue numbers, I expect that, you know, we should have, you know, a certain amount of growth every year anyway. I don't think we've ever really had a drop in Christmas sales. Like, I don't think ever. So, you know, it's not surprising. I don't think it indicates anything other than interesting information. It's not like, oh my gosh, we should buy the market again because everything's going to the moon. You know, let's see how these things shake out. There's still some fundamentals that haven't uh, caught up to us. And that is that interest rates are much higher. You know, companies are, have been spending their cash to exist. Now they're going to have to start borrowing money to exist at much higher rates than they're used to. It's going to cut into their profit line. You know, there's always a lag between what the Fed does by maybe six to 18 months. And so, you know, we've seen most of these interest rate hikes just in the last year or so. So, you know, let's see where it, it leaves us, you know, in the next couple of quarters, we may still have some softness as far as how the economy and the market really reacts. I'm optimistic that, you know, people are still comfortable spending money. That's good. I just hope it's not digging a bigger debt hole because people already have too much debt. We're over a trillion dollars in credit card debt. The interest rates on those credit cards are going higher and higher. That's just going to cut into uh, people's uh, future spending ability and possibly their own, their future, uh, I guess, economic existence as we know it today. So again, you know, let's take it all with a grain of salt, not with a grain of salt. Let's just take it all in stride and, you know, not uh, make too much of it. I'm glad the sales were higher, but uh, I don't know that it uh, indicates anything like we're done with any trouble ahead.
And I think during Black Friday, most of those sales were online, Jeff, not necessarily brick-and-mortar stores. But people were going to sites like Amazon to buy things. And as you said, running up credit card debt and eventually that piper will need to be paid. But speaking of Amazon, I understand now that you can buy a car on Amazon. Hyundai is the first manufacturer to partner with Amazon to do that. Do you think that this is just the beginning? Do you see more things coming on Amazon? I mean, am I going to be able to buy a house on Amazon sometime in the future? Yeah, you know, Amazon is just such a huge company. You know, there used to be this antitrust stuff that made it hard for big companies to just squash everybody else out of existence. But unfortunately, that's what's happening. I mean, even the retail, even the big box retailers are hurting because of the ability to do online sales. You know, Instagram and Facebook, social media sites, I know are advertising like crazy. That's all internet stuff you can buy. And what's that Shopify or what is it? They'll even finance your stuff for you without your credit cards. And it's like crazy how easy it is to buy stuff. And you can be whimsical about what you buy. You don't have to actually go to the store, walk around, see if you can find it and take it home. It's just like, oh, I can have it tomorrow. I just hit the button and who cares? I can pay for it later whenever I figure out how to get that money. So I think it's creating some bad fiscal responsibility or irresponsibility in a lot of people, unfortunately, because there's probably more people buying things that shouldn't be than are. Does it help the economy? Yeah, overall. But I think, unfortunately, it's going to help the it's going to help the rich people stay rich and it's going to make the poor people uh, probably get poorer. And I'm a little bit worried about just how easy it is to buy stuff and how big these online operations are. I mean, pretty soon we're going to have like seven big, you know, the Magnificent Seven, all these uh, huge companies, the Microsofts, Apples, I mean, Apple owns iPhones, uh, you know, market. Well, maybe not the whole market, but you know, they own such a big market share. Amazon owns such a big market share of any online buying. Microsoft owns everything has to do with you know, cloud storage and internet services. So there might be seven companies put everybody else out of business. Where's these, where's the little guy going to go? And that's probably the biggest thing that worries me about what I'm seeing is just how big the big guys are getting and how there's not really a lot of help or hope for the little guy or the small, uh, especially the mom and pops. I mean, they're pretty much non-existent anymore compared to what they were when I grew up. And yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Of course, economies of scale help us to be able to buy stuff a lot cheaper, easier, quicker, more convenient. I mean, it does a lot of things that makes us all feel good and get stuff. But, you know, overall, I'm still concerned about, you know, what it does overall to the economy and a lot of industries that are being squashed out of business. I hope there's enough new jobs, maybe in the AI field or somewhere that uh, these people can actually go to make a living so they can continue to buy stuff online because that seems to be where it's going. Yeah. And as I said, there's no end, I think, to the things you can buy online with Amazon, cars now. I don't know how you can vet the car that you're buying. Uh, One thing for sure, I don't think if you don't like it, you can drop it off at Whole Foods for a refund. But nevertheless, I'm going to keep an eye on that and see how that's going. But I think next is, I, I don't know, maybe you can buy a tiny home on Amazon, but it is interesting. We're talking with Jeff Ogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson. We're talking about current events. I want to wrap up this segment, Jeff, by talking about something that has popped up here, which is which is rather disturbing, and that is Social Security and the, and the overpayments. I mean, billions of dollars they have overpaid, and some people are getting these notices from Social Security saying, hey, you owe us $65,000. If you don't send us a check, we're going to cut off your benefits. What do you make of that? Well, I just, it underscores how incompetent uh, everything associated with the government is. Now, that doesn't mean everybody in government is incompetent, but I think the organizations have enough gaps to where the organizations can be competent, no matter how many smart people you have in there, because you have some, I guess, too many dumb people. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to be you know more blunt than that, but it doesn't surprise me. The thing is, is how do you reconcile that? You overpay somebody. They think they got a fair paycheck because they think the government's doing the right thing. They spend it because they need to make a living, or even they, they might even up their budget or buy a 
bigger uh, mobile home in the park they live in because they right. have a little bit extra Social Security coming in. If that's their only paycheck, they feel like, oh, good, I can finally afford you know a nicer place or whatever. And then the Social Security comes back and says, oh, sorry, we overpaid you. You owe us 60 grand by uh, next week or we're going to just hold your next three years of Social Security payments. You know, I don't know what they're after, but you know, I, I understand they need to try to support and not deplete the uh, Social Security trust fund for those people that have put in legitimately and have a, a legitimate right to their money back plus you know, what was promised them. But how, how do you do that? And be fair. I think the fact is the government's incompetent. Unfortunately, it's going to cost taxpayers. It's going to cost other recipients of Social Security to have some sort of an adjustment because of their stupid mistakes. But I just don't see how they can legitimately go after money from a person on a fixed income where 90% or more of it is Social Security income. Maybe all of it is Social Security income and expect to come back and, and get that back. And I, I just hope they don't make, you know, all these elderly people that are living on a you know shoestring and a monthly paycheck-to-paycheck paycheck budget, right. which consists only of Social Security, how can they put them out of existence? That's like an existential threat and, you know, more than global warming, in my opinion, to those people. And it just baffles me that if they make a mistake, they could say, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. Your new payment's only going to be this. We're sorry for the inconvenience it costs, but guess what? We're not going to charge you back what we screwed up. You know, I think having that letter is hard enough to swallow that your paycheck's going to go down by 13% or whatever it was that they were overpaying you. Hopefully not half of the money or something like that. It's probably just a small amount. Bottom line is, why can't they just take it out of maybe uh, future cost of living adjustments for right. everybody? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we get those, but sometimes I think they're a little bit, uh, probably too low on average, but a little bit higher lately than they probably had to be. Nevertheless, you know, inflation is a real thing and they need to adjust for that, but they can't deflate by saying, oh, sorry, we overpaid you. Sorry, you spent the money. We want it back now. Go sell your stuff or go back and move into that smaller mobile home because the one you're living in, you can't afford now or go homeless or ask your kids for 60 grand because otherwise you're going to stop. I don't know. It just blows my mind. It's, it's a sad situation that they got in this mess, but unfortunately it just doesn't surprise me. You know, if it was a real business that had to run a real budget, they'd be a little tighter on the accounting and probably have done it better, especially if they're a public company that got audited all the time. Who audits social security? Why wasn't it caught before? It's internally self-regulated, I guess. It's just a bunch of other inept government people that feel so confident in their job security that they don't really have to put their brain to work to figure out what they're supposed to do, I guess. And I, I hate to sound condescending, and, I, and I'm not necessarily, but I think there's a certain sense of complacency with many government entities and workers, especially the ones that are mostly involved in, I don't know, mostly the entitlement and welfare system that, hey, I can't lose my job. I'm a government worker and I get my pension and they can't fire me, so I don't really have to do anything. I just have to uh, pretend like I'm working and do what it looks like I'm supposed to say. But I don't know. I shouldn't probably go off on this high horse, but I think there's a little bit too much of complacency when the government pays based on the fact that they just promised to pay rather than run it like a business where they actually have to meet a budget. They actually have to audit their results. They have to actually report actual numbers. If they had to run like a publicly held company does and be held to those same standards, this stuff wouldn't have happened. So I don't know. It frustrates me that they can get away with so much on the government side and somehow the only people that have to pay for their mistakes are us, not them somehow. That is an unfortunate situation, Jeff. It was the subject of a 60-minute story about three weeks ago, and there are some of these elderly people who have mortgaged their houses again or maybe even sold their houses so that they can pay this back. But as you said, this is an unfair situation. I don't know how it happened, but it can't happen again. 
We're talking with Jeff Ogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson and also up in Mesa. We've been talking about current events. And if you like what you've heard, you want to sit down and talk with Jeff about your individual situation, how you can get through these turbulent times that we're having right now and get on the path to a successful retirement. Jeff is offering a complimentary, no cost, no obligation retirement roadmap review. It's a five-point retirement review, which takes a look at an income plan, investments to support your income plan, a tax plan, a health care plan, and an estate plan. And as I said, in these inflationary times, I mean, who wouldn't like something for free? And that is what this costs. Absolutely nothing. Totally complimentary. If you would like yours, call 520-780-9059. Again, no cost, no obligation. 520-780-9059. We've got some spots available for you right now before the end of the year. You could also request yours online at primret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, I understand that uh, you've got a case of the week now that you'd like to tell us about. What was your case of the week about? So occasionally we get clients that have real estate holdings like you know shopping centers. Maybe they've got uh, farmland and they know that they don't necessarily have a ton of cash, but they have a ton of assets and they see the estate planning issue maybe confronting us. We know that the estate tax limits that uh, have been growing up to now, if you're a married couple, you can get out of about 25 plus million dollars and not have to pay estate taxes. But that's a a rule that was uh, put into place back in the Bush years and then uh, has been continued to kind of be extended for a little while. However, you know, if the government who likes to balance the budget says, oh, we need to raise more taxes and, you know, uh, uh, in order to spend more money is going to do what rumors have it. Not only is that log in a sunset along with the Trump tax cuts coming up in 2026, but there's been a lot of what ifs, you know, how can we lower that $25 million in estate tax to maybe seven or 8 million for a couple or a family, or maybe 4 million for a decedent type of a thing so that the government can collect more money, uh, basically death tax. Well, if you've got all property and all real estate, you might have to sell that stuff in order to raise the cash to pay your estate taxes. Estate taxes are about 40% on whatever the extra is. So, you know, you don't have to have $25 million in estate value to be worried about estate taxes because if they lower it to $4 million, and even if you have 2 or $3 million in total asset value now or a few properties, you know, that could be, uh, you know, worth a few million dollars or maybe double or triple in the next 20 or 30 years while you're retired, you may have an estate tax problem even if you don't right now. So this particular person that came to me this last week, you know, has about uh, 15 to $20 million, roughly somewhere in that range of farmland that's been basically generational. He's uh, got three kids and none of the kids actually want to buy the farm or, or have the farm, but there might be a nephew or a couple of nephews from this person's uh, siblings that have already passed away and he actually bought the farm from them, but the kids might want to buy it back. Problem is, is there's really no cash or no cash flow or no way to support his own children if there's no cash to distribute upon death. There's not 40% of that $20 million value of farmland available in cash to pay the estate taxes if he wants to keep it out of the hands of the IRS so that he can actually take a payment plan from, from the heirs, et cetera. So what has happened lately is he's getting close to retirement. He's basically retired. He uh, does a crop share rental program on the land now, and it's a, it's a fairly large farm. And uh, his share of the crops is about $500,000 a year. He needs maybe one to $200,000 to live. Doesn't really know how to amass or invest this extra 300000 a year. He figures that, you know, if he lives long enough, maybe he can grow, you know, eight or $10 million off of that if he lives 30 or 40 years and makes uh, good money like, you know, we've seen on the Amazons and Apples and Microsofts and NVIDIAs of the past. But again, you know, that's all kind of risk-based. How do you get something that's a little bit more secure? And so the plan we're talking about is 
how to take part of that cash flow from that asset. You know, this could be a rental property or an apartment complex that you have or a small strip mall that you own somewhere that's generating a few hundred thousand dollars a year in cash that you don't really want to sell the entity because you want the step up when you die, but you don't want to pay estate taxes. Or if you do, you don't want to pay it on the whole thing. Well, here's kind of some of the ideas that we've come up with. And one is put the farm in an irrevocable trust right now. Have one of your responsible children be the trustee of the trust still pay you all the income from the crop share. And what this does is it basically freezes the estate taxes. If you can give $25 million away to heirs right now and get out of the unified credit, which now is $25 million, and you put that $20 million into a trust, okay, so what? You've given away the unified credit. So let's say down the road, the exemption is three or $4 million. That's okay. You only pay tax on you know what you have that's outside of that trust. And maybe you only have three or $4 million. So maybe you pay a million dollars in estate taxes instead of five or $10 million in estate taxes. So there's a big savings just right by moving it into a trust. The other thing is, what do you do in order to create some liquidity to not only pay those estate taxes, but also to pay your own kids off because the nephews are going to be buying the farm because your kids don't want it. Well, we just did a proposal and uh, based on their age and health, they can get about somewhere between 17 and $21 million in life insurance for about two fifty a year, $250,000 a year. How do you, well, how do you do that? Well, he's making $500,000 a year on, uh, you know, farm crops. Uh, he's still got a couple million dollars in buffer in case he has a bad year or whatever. And that's on the crop share. Of course, if prices of corn, wheat and other things go up, he'll, he'll make more money. But uh, he can take half of that money put it in a life insurance trust, an extension of the irrevocable trust that he's going to set up to save estate taxes. He can continue to take that money and he can gift it back to the irrevocable trust and put it in life insurance. Now, if it's more convenient, you could pay taxes on it at the trust rate and put the profits that he doesn't take out into a life insurance policy that would basically pay about, let's just say $20 million in tax-free cash upon death. And there's no step up in basis because it's already been stepped up when you gave it to the um, trust and it's out of your estate because it's still in a trust and the trust doesn't die when you die, but that trust can distribute that $20 million to your kids so that they can have an immediate upfront or they can even pay it out over a lifetime annuity on tax-free money, which is very tax efficient to the heirs, not have any um, tax ramifications on an income basis, capital gains basis, or estate tax basis on, let's say, upwards of 40, 50, or $60 million in 30 years, if, if that's what, let's say the farmland doubles, plus you've got another you know, 20 million in insurance that you've paid for from the proceeds from what the farm's generated. Now, this is a big case. Now, let's just say, I mean, not a big case, but it's bigger than most people that I meet have. You know, Most people have maybe $3 million in assets or something. Maybe it's not going to create a, a tax problem. But what if those assets are going to go to one heir and you still need to generate some cash so that the other heirs can be taken care of? We can kind of use this example and come back and say, okay, well, does this work for me? I don't have $20 million, but I've got a few million dollars or may have five or $10 million. Do I want to use an estate tax uh, irrevocable trust to avoid estate taxes now? Do I want to uh, just wait until I know what they're going to be and then move money? But the thing is, is you can use the tax exemption of gift tax in order to take the profits off the farm and you can actually gift roughly $15,000 a year right now to each child or grandchild per spouse. So let's say, you know, my, my client has a spouse. So between both of them, they've got 15, between children and grandchildren, they've got 15 grandchildren and three kids. So there's 18 people they can give money to. So that's more than the 250, what we want to put in this life insurance. What they do is they take it and they gift that money to the uh, heirs and the heirs disclaim it and put it back in that trust so that they can get a piece of that $20 million tax-free benefit later. 
And if the kids ever don't disclaim, then you just don't give them any money anymore. So again, there's some ways to uh, develop an estate tax plan, which creates tons of liquidity. It's basically a LERP on steroids because you avoid estate taxes and income taxes and the step up in basis and capital gains taxes. So it's tax savings, tax savings over tax savings. And uh, when you look at the tax equivalent yield, you'd have to make a lot of money in the stock market, have enough money to pay taxes and still leave your heirs and you're taking risk along the way and to leave your, your heirs, you know, any type of an estate. So again, an estate planning approach where we're trying to avoid estate taxes, get the benefit of a step up in basis on property that you can hold until death rather than sell it now, pay capital gains and have a reduction in the, the value of that property that have to start over to develop an estate plan. But just by using trust and creativity and using some tax advantage investments, you can end up keeping a lot more in your own estate and passing a lot more on the way you want. But it takes planning. It's not something you can do after you're dead or when you're on your deathbed. It needs to be done, in most cases, years in advance. So be thinking about estate planning when you're in your 50s or 60s if you've already hit that million or millions mark and you think the estate could continue to grow to a point where, especially if you have estate taxes. But even if you don't have estate taxes and you want some uh, liquidity, consider how you use the cash flow from those investments creatively in order to create the legacy that you want and the liquidity that you want and to compensate those errors that you love the way that you want. That is a very creative solution to a rather complex problem. Jeff, thank you so much for telling us about that case of the week. If you'd like to sit down with Jeff and present your problems to him or maybe just have him get a look at the retirement plan that you already have, or if you don't have a plan, let him design one for you. No cost, no obligation for that. How do you get it? You call 520-780-9059. It's 520-780-9059. Again, no cost and no obligation for this. You can also request it online at premret.com. That's P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, time for a break. We've got listener questions next when our show continues right here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan. And you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much for joining us here on Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan. We're here for you every week for your fiscal fitness and your financial education. And if you're just joining us, I want to remind you that we're also a podcast. If you missed any part of the program today, simply go to wherever you get your podcast and search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan. You'll find this show and many of our past shows so that you can stay on top of your wealth and your journey towards retirement. Jeff, in this segment, of course, we have listener questions this week. We're going to start off with Elena listening to us in Tucson. And Elena writes, my husband and I have been working with a retirement advisor for 13 and 5 years, respectively. The advisor is the same person from my husband's field, TIAA. We've been retired for about three years and are in our mid-60s. Recently, I asked for an analysis of my assets to determine how I'm doing. If I'm withdrawing too much, not enough, etc. Our advisor said no, this was not possible. And the compliance department would consider this a violation since the analysis I requested was on only one member of the portfolio. We're considered a jointly held portfolio. I didn't think I was asking for anything exotic, simply feedback and information. I assumed it would be simple to run an analysis. It seems odd that analyzing my assets is impossible and would be a compliance violation. Am I missing something here? 
Well, you know, there is a couple of things that stand out. One is, is how can you really say if you're taking out too much, everything's theoretical. We don't know what the, uh, if if you have TIA and you've got other investments, all market-based or even bond-based, some people think that fixed income securities, which are bonds, are somehow safe when, you know, you look at the last couple of years and they've gone down 10 or 15% or more, depending on the type of bonds you hold in value. So if you need to actually live on that money instead of just the interest or the interest to yield to maturity, then uh, you're locking the losses along the way. So, yeah, they have some general rules of thumb, like the 4% rule, which has now been toned down to about 2.8 or 2.3%, depending on how many market crashes we can have in a decade, like we did in 2000 to 2010, which was a lost decade. If you were using money during that period of time, you're not going to, you're taking too much out almost no matter what you're taking out. So, because you're dipping into principal and that's principal that you won't uh, make money on when the market comes back. And if you've got a 20 or 30 year retirement ahead of you or more, you know, who's to say what the volatility in the market and how much you're going to use or how much you're taking out is going to last. So I think from a compliance standpoint, they don't want to probably go out on a limb and say, oh yeah, we think you'll have this much and then have you come up short because the markets don't respond accordingly. And then all of a sudden they feel like they're on the hook or you have a lawsuit because the analysis said X. So some companies like to disclaim some broker dealers and some advisors or their compliance office want to disclaim anything that gives future estimates or some sort of a forward-looking thought process of any kind or tax planning. They disclaim all of that. And most companies do. Now, there are some statistical run uh, reports like a Monte Carlo analysis that you can actually Google online and say, hey, this is how much money I have. And I have this much in equities and this much in bonds. You know, what's a reasonable rate of return? And if I take out X amount, you know, what's my chances of still having money when I'm 95 years old? And it'll give you within the bell curve type estimate. It'll say, well, you have a 78% chance of not running out of money by the time you're 95. Well, that might bother you. It bothers me. Unless you have certain things that guarantee income, like your social security is still guaranteed. I still don't think even in spite of how screwed up the trust fund and the overspending and the overpaying and the, you know, wanting their money back and the bad accounting that they have in the social security department, I still don't think that they're going to end up just not giving you that money. So I think that's one of those sources you can consider guaranteed income. The other is, you know, what do you have in your investments? Is it a million or two? I don't know. If it's a couple hundred thousand dollars, if it's a couple hundred thousand dollars, be real careful because that might be your emergency money. You probably shouldn't be taking anything out of it. But if you have a million or two, you know, maybe you're taking 40 or 50 or $60,000 out of it. You know, that probably isn't going to be a big deal. If you have a couple million dollars, even if it's in securities, you'll probably end up making it. However, why not take half of that money and put it in something that'll guarantee you $60,000 a year forever, no matter what happens, insured, secured account. Even if the account draws down to zero, you still have a paycheck. You can do it on a single or joint basis. I like using index annuities with income riders for that purpose. I like using LERPs if you want income that's predictable, less than guaranteed, but it's predictable and it's tax-free, but you know, you don't have to, I mean, you have $60,000 out of an IRA is taxable. You're still living on 40,000. What if you can get a predictable income of 50 or $60,000 tax-free from a LERP? And, you know, if you miss, you're still got your $40,000 net or so. So you can skin this cat with a lot of different ways than just dealing with the securities business, which Wall Street would love to keep you in because that's how they make all their fees and all their, you know, ongoing incomes. Whereas, you know, if you work with a company that insured your portfolio, that guaranteed your principal, that took all the risk off of you and onto them and used your interest to generate a plan where you couldn't lose money, but you could make market gains when the market's good and not lose money when the market's bad. And actuarially, they know what their track record is and what their probability of success is over the next 20, 30 or 40 or even 50 years, longer than your life. They've got a budget that's a lot longer than what your retirement probably is. So 
If you use some of those companies that are insured and secured, of course, Wall Street hates them because they're insurance companies, but insurance companies manage pensions. That's what they do. Do a private pension with some of your money, get the guaranteed income to a point where you can live, and then it doesn't really matter what you take. You're not going to run out of money. And if, if you can still have a few hundred thousand or a, a million or two that you don't have to use for income, depending on where you're at in the spectrum of you know savings, you know, I know I've talked to you know, quite a big range of numbers today from a few hundred thousand to you know, tens of millions in the, the case of the week I just talked about. But you know, wherever you are on that spectrum, create an income stream that you can count on from that asset. And once that's done, if that pays all your bills, then you can adjust what you take out of those other investments and not have to worry about, you know, if I'm drawing too much principal down because these are all assets at risk or, you know, do I have to adjust my lifestyle because I'm starting to get behind the eight ball here after a decade of meager or no returns or choppy returns in the market. Diversify your portfolio. Keep some in the market for fun and for upside, but keep some in an asset class that guarantees income so that you don't have to have that question. In that case, you don't have to really go out on a limb. I don't have to go out on a limb. I can say, hey, I've got you $125,000 of guaranteed lifetime income between all the sources, plus there's some inflation hedges with Social Security and other things that go up with time, and you've still got a probable rate of return over here on a diversified portfolio of X, but if the market's bad, you don't have to dip into it and take losses. That's all optional. So you live high on the hog when the market's great and you just kind of live good and comfortable when the market's not. You don't have to worry about running out of money that way. So I like to look at a plan a little bit differently. I like to use all the tools in the bag. I don't like to use just one tool because it's the tool that I was told to use and the one that makes my company the most money. You know, I work for you. My company isn't a Wall Street company. My company is an independent advisory firm that is a fiduciary that works for you. So we use all the tools that are out there and we construct a plan that guarantees you income keeps in mind your taxes, maybe withdraws funds from a variety of different accounts at different times so that you're not locking in losses on the whole bag if the market's not doing well like it hasn't done for the last few years. Most people are locking in losses and have to revamp their retirement dreams and plans because the last few years have not performed very well because all this choppiness and volatility has killed some people's retirement plans because they've still had to spend money out of accounts that are down 20% or more. And just because the indexes seem to be a little bit back closer to even of what they were a couple of years ago doesn't mean that you weren't taking losses when the market was down 20, 30 or 40 percent in the meantime. So and we don't know if it's going to go down again. So, you know, I would take all of the income risk off the shoulders of your advisor who's only apparently dealing in risk and won't give you that advice or won't give you that analysis because, you know, they don't want to make promises that they can't keep. And if it's market based, there are no promises that you can keep. So honestly, if I was in that position and only had risk to offer, I'd be scared to give you an analysis too, because I know there's a good chance that I could be wrong and you could come back and, you know, want to sue me for the difference or make a complaint or tell me I'm a horrible advisor. I don't want to be a horrible advisor. I want to be a good advisor that guarantees your income that needs to be guaranteed and take risk on only the amount of money you can afford to lose. And Elena, I sense that you're just not happy with your financial advisor. So maybe time to look for a new one and it doesn't appear that you're getting the answers that you want. So if you'd like to talk with Jeff, 520-780-9059 is the number to call. We thank you for that question. We'll be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Okay, Jeff, our next question is going to be Judith from the Catalina Foothills. And Judith writes, what is the benefit of having a trust versus a will? We own our own home. We have a rental property and we have no debt. My husband and I are in our late 60s, retired, and both have IRAs, over $500,000 in the stock market and approximately $100,000 in CDs. We have three grown children, one is a stepchild. We currently have a will, but are wondering if a trust is a better option. What's your opinion? Well, I think anything's a better option than a will. Let me just start with that. 
a will is a court document. A will goes to court and there has to be a probate process where lawyers get to take advantage of you while you're dead and dictate the prices of what it costs to uh, distribute your estate to who you want, how you want, when you want. Why don't you just do it yourself? You can either do that through a trust, but you may not even need a trust to do that. You could have beneficiaries on all your properties, assuming that your rental property and other assets are based in Arizona. In Arizona, you can actually put beneficiaries on a deed to your home, beneficiaries on even a rental property. Any home you own, you can have a beneficiary deed on, and you can have beneficiaries on your IRAs. You can have transfer on death designations on your investment accounts. You can have uh, PODs, pay on death at your bank on CDs and other bank accounts. So you can have a situation where everything goes to your heirs without probate. Now, one thing I will say that a trust package does provide is you can own things or make the trust the beneficiary of all your stuff when you die instead of having each of your kids third, third, third or whatever. And you can have one of your children, and this, this might benefit you if you have one child that might be a little bit less good with money or you know, maybe, uh, you know, somebody's not super responsible and you want a certain payout or a certain person to be trustee of your trust after you pass in order to monitor the use or the spending or the distribution of those assets according to your desires. If you just want equal distribution of all your assets upon your death, then it's pretty easy to do that if you just put each person's, your heirs' names on those assets as a beneficiary. And then they each make their claim for their third of the property or the third of the asset. Now, of course, if they're all beneficiaries on a deed, they all have to, I mean, it has to be sold and you know, somebody has to be in charge of that. So you'd all, your kids would all have to get along. And one thing is you could have a trustee of a trust do exactly what you want, regardless of what the other two think. If you had the house in a trust and was told to liquidate the house and divide it three ways and you had a trustee in charge. So there are some benefits to a trust, but you keep it out of the court system. You keep those extra fees off the table. You don't have to pay them. A trust can be liquidated and distributed quickly. Probate in Arizona, I think it's over two and a half years still. It hasn't gotten any quicker. It's probably getting longer and longer. It's probably over three years now. I haven't checked for a long time how long it takes, but I've not seen easy, quick probates on even simple estates. So again, do that. But here's the other thing. When you get a trust, typically, and sometimes when you get a will, the attorney's office or the estate planner, whoever you do it through, I mean, we do trust and will packages as well here at our office. And we have certified doctors that do those. We can work with attorneys if you desire to, an attorney and want to pay more for it, but you get the same documents. Bottom line is if you have a trust or a will, either way, you need what's called ancillary documents, which are powers of attorney. So that if you get ill, incapacitated, or some reason can't sign your name, your spouse or somebody as a backup, one of your kids could do that for you. The other thing is a living will is an important thing. A living will is the one that says, pull the plug if I'm brain dead and I'm a in a persistent vegetative state. Don't have a chance to be revived and come back from whatever condition I have. If you have two doctors agree, it's okay to let you go in dignity instead of linger and just pad the pockets of the hospital or the doctors uh, who are attending you. So, you know, keep in mind, powers of attorney, even a pour over will you can have in a trust package. You know, if you're going to choose between a will and a trust, I definitely pick trust. You might not need the trust part, but in all cases, make sure you have those backup documents. Powers of attorney for healthcare, HIPAA disclosures so that, you know, doctors and medical providers can talk to your agents about what's going on with you so you can make proper decisions on their behalf and make sure your finances are, are in order with a financial durable power of attorney for that matter as well. And then, uh, you know, that living will to have the plug pulled if you get to that brain dead state. So those are some uh, things to consider when you consider your estate plan. If you want a review of, uh, you know, what the options are, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Judith, thanks a lot for that question. We appreciate you listening to us in the foothills. And again, we will send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. 
Okay, Jeff, our next question is Jerry and Ellen Canto. And Jerry says, my mother has a home valued at approximately $300,000 and no money in savings. She's using many state-funded benefits like food stamps, energy assistance, Medicaid, to supplement what her Social Security does not cover on a monthly basis. My brother and I are trying to determine if selling her home and moving her to a smaller, less expensive home would help. But we realize that once the house sells, she may lose all or some of these benefits because she would then have some money in the bank. Is the right thing to do to transfer her home into our names? But then we would have to pay capital gains once it sells, order a trust before selling it so that it's out of her name. She won't be able to survive without these state benefits, regardless of an increase in her savings. Well, there are ways to move a house out of her name into trust and do what's called home preservation trusts, irrevocable trusts, things like that. They can put, you know, you as one of the child or children on uh, the trust as the trustee, and you can still let her live in it till she dies and then sell it. Now, if you transfer that home into the trust and she passes within five years, there is a law that says that the state can go back and put a lien on the house and that future sale in order to recapture Medicaid payouts and things like that. So, if you're going to do it, do it sooner rather than later. Now, here's another option that I don't think is a bad idea. Now, because if there are outstanding liabilities from some of these uh, state-funded benefit programs and they want to put a lien on the house, if they start doing that, now, to my knowledge, they haven't done that to anybody yet in Arizona, but they have the right to. But if they ever did that, how do you encumber the house so much that they can't really get a whole lot? And one of the things is you can do a reverse mortgage with an equity line of credit where you don't actually take the entire lump sum and stick it in your bank. Or you can have just basically a reverse mortgage with a line of credit where every time you need money, maybe the limit is $2,000 you can have in your bank account, but you know, your mom you know, has the food stamps and other things come in that don't actually look like money in the bank account. Maybe she can take $1,000 a month out of that credit line and spend it for extra expenditures. She can take you guys out to dinner and buy you stuff with it for all that matters, but she can use that and basically use up you know, maybe half the equity in that house before passing. And then at that point, you know, she's already used up a, a ton of equity. And she's lived in her house where she might want to stay if she could and, you know, not have to worry about moving to a smaller house and, and going through the rigmarole of doing trust and waiting five years and making sure that it doesn't get, uh, you know, touched. And if she goes off benefit, she has to spend all the equity in her house that she sold and bought the smaller house. Now she lives in a smaller house. She spends the equity and has to reapply for benefits. You know, that does seem like a cumbersome thing. And I appreciate you asking that question. I would ask that too. So, you know, one of the answers that we've had is uh, the reverse mortgage program was built for situations just like this where mom needs a little bit extra assistance you know they're not using her house value and the fact that it's paid off i'm assuming it's paid off as a factor as to what benefits she gets the fact that she has a house she can live in it and she has a right to that she also has a right to borrow against it as long as you know more than that limit doesn't go into her bank account any given month if they audit her and see that she's got fifty thousand dollars sitting in the bank account that yeah that doesn't look good but if she just takes a thousand a month so she can pay for extra things and go to the movies and hang out with her girlfriends and go places and do fun stuff so she can enjoy her retirement why not spend the investment that she's already paid for you know, that house is her investment. She, you say she doesn't have any savings. Yeah, she does. She's got $300,000 in equity in a house. That's her savings. Why not use it? And uh, you can do it in a stealth way. It never shows up as income on your tax return. So it's not going to be like a 1099 that's going to show income. It's just going to be money you get to use. You get to spend the equity in your house and whatever's left. If they do put a lien on it, they can only get whatever the half that's left because the bank ends up having already loaned out that money, gets the uh, priority to get that money back with interest. So Again, don't despair. There are some easy ways to do this that uh, would keep her in the house and uh, still give her a better lifestyle. 
And once again, Jeff, that is a very creative solution. That's what I like about the way that you do business is that, you know, there are a lot of X's and O's, but sometimes you really have to tap into your creativity. So we appreciate that. And we appreciate Jerry listening to us in El Encanto. And once again, we will send you out, Jerry, Jeff's book, which is Retirement, The Road Ahead. Now, if you've got a question you'd like us to answer on the air, you can send it to us by going to premret.com. It's P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Send your question to us. And again, if we answer it on the air, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. But you don't have to send us a question to get that book. If you'd like it, simply call 520-780-9059 and request that book. And while you're at it, why don't you request a no-cost, no-obligation, no-judgment retirement review with Jeff there at Premier Retirement. Again, it's not going to cost you a dime. Do it before the end of the year. Get 2024 off on the right foot. Once again, 520-780-9059 or online at premret, P-R-E-M-R-E-T dot com. Well, Jeff, as people are listening to this program today, it's either December the 2nd or December the 3rd. Bottom line is we've got just a few weeks before Christmas and then another week after that before 2024 rolls around. Are there any things that you want to encourage people to take a look at in their retirement portfolio or from a tax standpoint that they should try to get done before the end of the year? Well, I mean, obviously we want to uh, pay the least amount of taxes as possible. That uh, doesn't mean just this year. So live on a shoestring and don't take any money out of your IRA because you can kick that can down the road. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about let's look at your entire retirement plan and see what you can do this year to make sure you don't pay a lot of taxes over the rest of your life. So we talk a lot about, there's a few different things you can do mostly on the tax planning area. And that is you can do uh, Roth conversions. You know, let's say you're in the 12% tax bracket, you're making $80,000 a year in retirement and, you know, paying taxes on 60, but you can go up to 80 and still pay 12%. Well, you've got $20,000 of tax bracket left at uh, 12% that you're not going to have for very much longer, a couple more years. Use up that tax bracket, move that money at 12 because later it's going to be 15. After that, it's going to be 15, 25, and 28. That's what the new brackets are going to go to. So, you know, putting off your taxes for the future just means you're going to have more money and pay taxes at a higher rate. I don't like that idea. So pay taxes at a lower rate. Do a Roth conversions. You can also look at LERPs, maybe using some of that uh, money that you've already paid taxes on and move it to something that you'll never pay taxes again on. And you can keep that money kind of in your own little bank account and borrow from it anytime you need to. And when I say borrow from it, you're not actually withdrawing money from the account. You're just borrowing from your eventual death benefit. In the meantime, the money you spent still continues to grow at a rate at or better than what you borrow at. So how'd you like a bank where you can go in and borrow money at 3% and stick it in a CD at six? I mean, I do that all day long. I mean, how many millions can I borrow? You know, I'm going to make money on my money. Uh, you can do that in a tax-free environment using the creativity of LERPs and the tax benefits of life insurance if you overfund it and use it right. So that's another thing you can do to plan uh, for taxes starting now. I'd rather pay taxes at 12 or 22 or you know some bracket lower than what we're going to have later at uh, 15 and 25 respectively. If you can, on some of that money, you can pull out of the... Um, of those uh, those asset classes, I mean, there's you can pull out over three hundred fifty thousand dollars in taxable uh, income and pay tax at a twenty four percent tax bracket. Now, once the Trump tax cuts go away in twenty twenty five, which means twenty twenty six, they go back into uh, you know unless they extend them, which I just doubt they will. Hmm. Um, the uh, the the tax bracket at three hundred fifty thousand dollars is going to now be in the thirty range. So you know why do you why not pay at twenty four now? and not be hit up for 30% or higher tax brackets later as 
the government finds the only way they can balance the budget is to raise taxes on uh, the people with money. And if you are a people with money or a person with money, people with money, um, I think paying less taxes over the course of your lifetime is better than uh, just getting all the deductions you can this year and kicking the can down the road and just knowing you're going to get hammered in the future. So uh, tax planning is important. You can do uh, some creative charitable gifting. I like donor advice funds. I've talked about those uh, before. I don't know how much time we have left here uh, today, but sure. uh, but uh, you know, donor advice funds is a great tax planning tool where you know you know most people. A couple now has about $28,000 in uh, a standard deduction. If you're not writing off a ton of medical bills and a lot of mortgage interest and a ton of other expenses, you're going to be in a position where, you know, that maybe you write off $20,000 because you give, uh, you know, some money to charity and you don't even get a tax write-off from it because it's buried in the standard deduction. What if you could do a donor advice fund? You have some appreciated stock. Maybe you've got too much uh, Apple stock in your portfolio. You want to sell a few at a, a profit, but you don't want to pay capital gains because, you know, your cost basis is 40 bucks and Apple's trading at 190 right now. So why not give that money to a donor advice fund, which counts as your own personal charity? You get a tax write-off based on the actual value of what you give the uh, uh, trust or, or this uh, donor advice fund, and maybe you give fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, which means after the standard deduction of twenty eight, you might not get a, a, a deduction if you have no other deductions. The twenty eight thousand is lost, but there's still seventy two thousand dollars left that you can write off if you have enough income to do so. If not, you can do this over a, a period of a couple of years, writing off a, uh, up to half your uh, adjusted gross income. So. You can overfund charitable gifts, and what you do with that is next year, you tell the donor advice fund to give your charity twenty grand or whatever it is that you're normally you know paying. Let's just say you're making two hundred thousand and you give twenty thousand a year to charities or your church, whatever tithing, whatever. Um, you can have your donor advice fund pay that out of the appreciated stock account that you only paid you know forty bucks for twenty years ago or ten years ago, and uh, and uh, it still keep the entire tax deduction on the $28,000 of standard deduction instead of having that donation buried. So essentially you put an extra, maybe 40 or $50,000 of what would be tax money back in your pocket over the next five or six years. So there's all kinds of neat year end strategies. You don't have to wait till year end to do them, but it's a good time to do them if you haven't started because you don't get the tax deduction unless you do it this year. So limited time left, hurry and you know, we'll see if we can help you get those deductions. Yeah. And the calendar says time is running out. So if you're even thinking about preparing for your retirement after the first of the year here, we invite you to call right now and request your appointment. Jeff does have a few slots available. You can get in sooner than later. 520-780-9059 is the number to call. Once again, no cost, no obligation for this casual conversation with Jeff. We call it the Retirement Roadmap Review. 520-780-9059. You could also request it online if you would at premret.com. P-R-E-M-R-E-T dot com. Hey, Jeff, we're out of time for this week, unfortunately, but I want to thank you for your time. I also want to thank all the fine people here in the greater Tucson area for listening to us. For Jeff Ogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement right here 
on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage, Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy, and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered.